Our Father, we approach You this morning and we recognize that if we are going to live for Your praise and Your glory and Your honor, and if we are going to live the happiest, most joyful life that we can live on this side of heaven, we are desperate to hear from You. And so Lord, we would ask that You give us teachable, expectant, humble hearts, that You would give us a mindset to take on whatever You revealed to us in Your Word this morning, shape our thoughts, shape our hearts, draw us into a delight in You and Your Word that surpasses what we currently have right now. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Robert Cleaver Chapman, better known as R.C. Chapman, lived from 1803 to 1902. Long life. He was a pastor, a teacher, an evangelist, but I think what would most clearly describe him is he was a vibrant Christian. He lived in England his whole life. He was a contemporary, if you're familiar with uh, that age, he was a contemporary with Charles Spurgeon and George Mueller and J.C. Ryle, three individuals that I often quote or speak about. He lived a remarkably humble, loving, winsome life. As a matter of fact, he was known by his contemporaries as the Apostle of Love. That's a pretty cool title, the Apostle of Love. Charles Spurgeon actually said about him, he was the saintliest man I ever knew. But on the idea of living for Christ, R.C. Chapman once said, there are many who preach Christ, but not many who live Christ. My aim will be to live Christ. On the Bible, being the word of life, listen to what R.C. Chapman said. He said, the book of God is a store of manna for God's pilgrim children. The great cause of neglecting the scriptures is not want of time, but want of heart. Some idol taking the place of Christ. Satan has been marvelously wise to entice away God's people from the scriptures. A child of God who neglects the Scriptures cannot make it his business to please the Lord of glory. Cannot make him Lord of the conscience, ruler of the heart, the joy, portion, and treasure of the soul. If the Bible be used aright by anyone, it will be to him the most pleasant book in the world. He went on to say some things about divisions in families and in churches and among Christians. He said, to reform the church of God, we should always begin with self-reform. Schisms and divisions will increase so long as we begin with the reforming of others. Wisdom is only with the lowly. He also said, if I have been injured by another, let me think to myself, let me think to myself, how much better to be the sufferer than the wrongdoer. 
So there was a, a young missionary who stayed in R.C. Chapman's home for a couple of months, and I want to recite to you his testimony of staying there. The whole ordering of the household had in view not only the comfort, but the general spiritual, mental, and physical well-being of the many who came for rest. It struck me at the time as being in its arrangement and conduct an ideal Christian household. The wisdom of retiring and rising early was forcibly taught by precept and example. Love and reverence for the scriptures and the subjection thereto formed the very atmosphere of the house. There too, the table talk was turned to spiritual ends as I've never to the same degree elsewhere known. An ordinary meal became an agape love meal for helpful and many a, a long meeting. It was an ideal home for a tired or discouraged worker or for a despondent or perplexed Christian. A stay there for days or weeks could not but deeply influence the whole aftercourse of a young Christian. And then one other guest testified that I will read. Mr. Chapman always retires at nine and rises at four. He attends to the minutest bodily and spiritual wants of a stream of visitors, some of whom stay for an hour, some for a month. It's his practice until recently to go around to every door and take away the boots of his guests, to clean them with his own hands. He called me at my own request at five. I was awake and waiting for his step. He put his venerable head in at my door just at the hour, lighting my candle and giving me for my morning portion. As for God, his way is perfect. A little after, he came to guide me to a little sitting room where a chair and a warm rug were placed beside a table furnished with a reading lamp and just in front of a lovely fire. At 6 a.m., I heard him calling one of the married couples in an adjacent room with the words, I will fear no evil. We breakfast by lamplight at 7 o'clock, and Mr. Chapman, who had prepared his own breakfast earlier, joined us at 8 o'clock for family worship. So after Chapman showed his uh, arriving guests to their rooms, he always would have them set their shoes or their boots outside of, of the guest room so that he would wash their boots. And when challenged on it, you know, no, you're not going to wash my boots. This is what Chapman would say. It's not the custom in our day to wash one another's feet. That which most nearly corresponds to this command of the Lord is to clean each other's boots. R.C. Chapman was a man who embodied the tone and tenor and instructions of Philippians 1, 27 through chapter 2, verse 18. This is one big section that we've been studying and breaking apart in three or four parts. And as I reflected on this section this week, where Paul starts off by saying, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, where we said that your life needs to measure up to the quality of the gospel of Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. And then when we looked at chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which Paul says, Have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus, and it is yours in Christ Jesus, who lived the most humbling life, who had the most humbling mindset, and who died the most humiliating death. He says, Have this same mindset. And then last week, where we saw work out 
your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you. It made me think of R.C. Chapman. It made me think of the kind of life that he lived, trying to magnify the glory of Christ, trying to be humble like the person of Christ, and trying to work out his salvation in real, tangible ways that bless the world. And church, this is what I want you to know. These things that Paul are instructing us to and calling us to are not impossibilities. Listen, you can live a life that magnifies Christ. You can take on the very mindset of Christ. You can walk out your salvation. You can live it out in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that it's God who is at work in you. Many have done it. Millions have done it. You can do it. But we must, we must yield ourselves to the Lord. We must yield ourselves to His Word. We must be formed and fashioned by Him if we're ever going to do that. And that's exactly what Paul would tell us. I invite you to turn to Philippians 2. This morning we're going to be studying verses 14 through 18. I'll read the passage and I will give you the big idea of the passage and we'll walk through it. Lord, help us here. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What is Paul saying here? And what is the Holy Spirit saying to us? He's saying, put off your grumbling and put on gladness by clinging to the word of life so that you can live blamelessly before God and beautifully before the world. That's the message right there. That is the big idea. Put off rumbling and put on gladness by clinging to the word of life so that you will live blamelessly before God and beautifully before the world. That's what I want out of your lives. If, if your life is going to, to, to be worthy of the gospel of Christ, if you're going to magnify the glory of Christ with your life, then you need to put off grumbling. You need to put on gladness. You need to cling to the word of life so that God will be pleased and people will be moved by the beauty and the uniqueness of the life that you live. That's the message. That's what he is teaching the Philippians, that's what the Spirit is instructing us today. Now, I want to walk through this by giving you four instructions. So these are going to be your applications. Four instructions to help you do this very thing, to help you put off grumbling and to put on gladness, to cling to the word of life, to live beautifully before the world and blamelessly before God. I want to give you four instructions right now. The first instruction that I want to give to you, church, is erase you're complaining. Erase your complaining. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things. Have you ever noticed that Paul is really big on a comprehensive Christian life? You ever realize that? Like He commands the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. That's comprehensive. 
I mean, is there anything that is, that is not encompassed in the word all? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He instructs the Colossian Christians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not to men. And then now he says to the Philippian church, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Church, the integrity of your Christian testimony is at stake by the way you live in every arena of your life. I'll say that again. The integrity of your Christian testimony is at stake by how you live in every arena of your life. Your social life, your family life, your personal life, your church life, your secret life, your testimony, the integrity of it is at stake by the way you live with everybody. It doesn't matter how you talk to the teller at the bank versus how you treat the customer service person on the telephone versus how you treat your children in private versus how you treat your husband or your wife out in front of the public. All of that matters. That's why Paul says comprehensively, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Now notice he says, without grumbling. This means do all things without a, a dissatisfied complaining. Well, that's what grumbling is. It's an expression of dissatisfaction in your circumstances because you're not getting what you want or what you think you deserve. You're either not getting what you want or th what you think you deserve when you want it and when you think you deserve it. That's what grumbling is. You, you are complaining about not getting what you want. Now, the Israelites who had been delivered by the great power of a loving God out of Egypt, they became experts at grumbling. If you read through Exodus and Numbers in particular, you see over and over they are complaining, and they're complaining to Moses. And they are saying, Moses, we want water, and we want it right now, and you're not giving it to us. You're a sorry leader. And then they, they get a little further and they say, man, we want meat and we want it right now. We're tired of this manna that's being provided for us. Man, back when we were in Egypt, we had, we had all kinds of fish and coriander seed and cucumbers and it was awesome. And now you bring us out here in the middle of this wilderness and we can't get anything but this manna. And they complain about whether it's water or food or whatever. And they're always complaining to Moses. But who are they essentially complaining about? God. They're complaining about God. Now, church, I want you to know that complaining breeds discontentment, discouragement, and despondency. That's what it brings. Complaining brings discouragement, discontentment, and despondency. It's just the natural progression of complaining. It embitters you against your authorities and against God Himself. And the people of Israel, they weren't grateful that Moses had come and led them out of slavery and out of bondage. They weren't excited about God's goodness and great power to bring Him out. The more they complained, the more discouraged they became. 
Complaining erases the memory of God's faithfulness. That's what complaining does. It erases the memory of God's faithfulness. You see, the more you complain, the less you give gratitude. The more you complain, the less you give thanks. The more you complain, you see what you don't have versus what you've been given in Christ. And so complaining erases the memory of God's faithfulness and utterly is is an expression of unbelief. I'll also tell you something about complaining. It cultivates a mindset of hostility. You know, people who complain a lot ultimately are mad at the world. You're like, you, you just, you better watch out for somebody who complains a lot because ultimately you're going to be the target of their complaint. You know, I... I'm not a big fan of complaining, and I'm not a big fan of cultivating complaining. I, I see children who complain frequently. I saw one last night, as a matter of fact, at Aldi. Child was just beside himself that he could not open the marshmallows that his mother literally just bought for. I mean, it is 10 seconds after she gives the money and he's wanting to tear into the marshmallows and she's like, no, not now, and he pitches a fit. Now, I, I think that as parents, we need to be very careful that we are complicit and we are encouraging a spirit of complaint in our children. You serve a nice meal, pork chops, I don't know, potatoes, maybe some greens on the side, and your child says, I don't want pork chops. I want chicken fingers. Well, I don't know. I want chicken fingers. Okay, I'll get you chicken fingers. They'll be ready in 20 minutes. Okay, that's complaining. And by you saying, I'm going to go get you some chicken fingers, you are cultivating a complaining spirit in your child. You're, you're, you, you serve up or you go get your child a, a little thing of milk and it's you know, 2% milk or whatever and you say, I don't want regular milk, I want chocolate milk. Oh, okay, I don't know, let me go see if they've got chocolate milk. Well, I'm not going to drink it if it's not chocolate milk. You are cultivating a complaining spirit in your child, a spirit that God himself hates. A teenager you know, gets a, a phone for a birthday, first, first cell phone. It's an iPhone 5 you believe my parents got me an iPhone 5? Could they not at least got me a 7? I cannot believe this. And you go, oh, I'll do whatever I can to get you a 7. Or you're cultivating a complaining spirit in your children. We cultivate a complaining spirit in ourselves. You know, I, I thought about a scenario where like a, let's say a, a wife says, well, I just wish I had a husband like Sally's husband who loves her and affirms her. You know, what happens with our complaining is that it goes from a child who just absolutely, you know, bashes his mother because he can't open the marshmallows right there in the store to a teenager who has a little more refined attitude about the iPhone because doesn't just pitch a fit to ultimately as, a, as an adult, we frame things in ways that make us sound admirable. But, in, but the, the bottom line is this, is that from child to teenager to adult, it's all a spirit of complaint. It's all a spirit that says, I am not satisfied with what God has given to me, and I am going to complain about it until I get what I want. You know, we all have a proneness to complain, some of us more than others. And so, 
I want to ask the question right now, how, how do we erase complaining? How, how do we erase this out of our lives? I think one thing that we should do is acknowledge the fact that we don't deserve anything good. Everything that is good in your life is God's grace in your life. I think we should search out idols in our hearts. Often we complain because because we can't get what we want most, and the thing that we want most is not God. It's something else other than God. It's someone else other than God. We need to search out idols that we are erecting in our hearts. We need to reflect on the faithfulness of God. And we need to count all the times that God has delivered us, all the times that God has saved us, all the, the times that God has provided for us. We need to recount His faithfulness in our lives when we're tempted to grumble and complain. We need to meditate on the example of Christ. I mean, He says, have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And if you think about this, y'all, Jesus... He could have complained, Father, I'm the creator of the world. Why are you making me live in it? I am judge over sinners. Why are you making me live with them? I deserve a crown and a throne and heavenly angels surrounding me. And right now, I don't even have a place to lay my head at night. I have fulfilled all righteousness, yet you're punishing me as if I have committed the most heinous sins imaginable. This isn't right. This isn't good enough for me. Church, is that what Jesus did? That's not what he did. He never complained one time because he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. We are to take on the same mindset of Christ. Now, he, Paul says, don't just do all things without grumbling. He says, also don't do all things without disputing. This word disputing can mean a, a variety of different things depending on the context, okay? It can mean an evil thought, an anxious reflection, an argument, a fight, a quarrel. Paul's using it to, to really talk about a divisive attitude, a divisive attitude that leads to divisive actions, and specifically in the church of Jesus Christ. The same word is used in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, where Luke tells us that an argument arose as to which of them was the greatest. Same word, an argument. A dispute arose as to which one of them was the greatest. I mean, can you imagine it? You know, Peter says, I'm going to be the greatest because of my leadership skills. Like, my, my surpassing love for Jesus, my un, unwavering commitment to Him. And then John says, no, give me a break, Peter. You've got the biggest mouth this side of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to be the greatest because of my strength. They don't call me the son of thunder for nothing. And all of a sudden, Judah says, neither of you know what you're talking about. I'm obviously going to be the greatest because of my administration skills. I am entrusted with the money. And they just go back and forth and back and forth. They're arguing and they're being divisive with one another as to who is going to be the greatest. You know, we dispute with one another in, in all kinds of ways. We, we dispute with one another physically. We see this a lot of times in our children. They get into physical fights and kicking matches and pulling of hair and, and, and you, you name it. But we also have emotional disputes where we yell and scream and cry out at one another. 
Verbal disputes that get a little bit more refined where we accuse one another. We slander one another. We talk about one another behind one another's back. We, we, we have this spirit of division about us because we've either been hurt by this person or we have uh, been attacked by this person and we, we uh, attack them verbally. We also have passive disputes. That's where we will sit on the other side of the church from another person or we will make sure that we don't sit at the same table at the fellowship meal with that person or we just are unwilling to speak. We know that they're walking this way and so we're going to walk another way so that we don't have to make eye contact. You know, it, it, it's a passive dispute. And so we dispute in all kinds of ways, physically, emotionally, verbally, passively. And all of this is sin. It's sin. It is rebellion against a good and glorious God. And so, I think that we need to see all these things. We need to, we need to ask questions like, what am I wanting that this person is not giving me? What am I hoping in right now where I should be hoping in Christ? What do I fear more than anything right now in this moment? What's the most important thing in the world to me right now? You know what? If we ask that question when we are tempted to complain and dispute with one another, if we were to ask the question, what's the most important thing in the world to me right now? Church, if we had the heartbeat of Christ, we would say the glory of Christ is the most important thing to me right now. And so I'm going to shut my mouth. But often, the most important thing is for us to get vindication, for us to get revenge, for us to get elevated, for us to feel like we're somehow getting, getting back or getting ahead or getting on top. You see, when you fight and quarrel and dispute with one another, you are revealing some facts. You are revealing that Christ is no longer your sufficiency, personal achievement, or personal glory is. You're revealing that Christ is no longer your hope, Christ is no longer your hope, but personal success is your hope. Christ is no longer your security, personal protection is your security. I mean, you realize that when we complain, when we dispute, when we quarrel, when we fight with one another, that's what we're doing. We're jockeying for personal position. And somehow we, we are perceiving that a person is knocking us down a rung in the ladder or knocking us off of our perch. And so we're saying, no, I'm going to get back on my perch. I'm going to get back up on top of that ladder. And what Christ would say is, please take on my mindset. I emptied myself. I'm not, I didn't cling to my glory. I didn't cling to all my rights and privileges, but I made myself lowly in order to serve. If you take on that mindset, you're not going to worry about who's on top of a ladder or who's sitting on top of a perch. All you're going to be worried about is loving people with my love. When you've been in a dispute or are even in one right now, you need to uh, follow those four G's that we've talked about through the years of peacemaking. If you're taking notes, it would be a great time to just remind yourself of these things. All right, so you're in a dispute. You've been complaining. You're bickering. You've got division within your family, division within somebody in the church or somebody in your community. This is what you need to do. First of all, glorify God. In your mind, you need to say right now, 
My chief ambition in this scenario is to glorify God, to make God look great, to make God look like the glorious, beautiful, wonderful God that he is. Number one, I'm going to glorify God. So whatever it takes to glorify God, that's what I'm committed to. Second, get the log out of your own eye. Get the log out of your own eye. You see, when you are complaining and bickering and disputing, you think it's all the other person's fault. You think it's all the other person's fault. And what Jesus would say is, no, get the log out of your own eye first. Have a spirit of self-judgment. Go before the Lord and say, Lord, earnestly, what have I done wrong? How have I messed up? What was wrong with my attitude, my speech? Was I unclear? Was I unhelpful? Was I unloving? Was I uncaring? Was I callous? Lord, please expose this to me and give me a repentant spirit and an honest spirit before my friend or my brother or sister. So get the log out of your own. Third, gently restore. Gently restore. When When you're at odds with a leader, with a parent, with a child, with a friend, with a brother. You need to go in gentleness and care for them in gentleness to try to restore the relationship. And fourth, go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. Don't wait for somebody to come to you. Don't wait and just look at your clock and time it. No, you go and be reconciled. Take the bull by the horns. So as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling... You need to do everything that you can to avoid grumbling and disputing in your life and in the life of the church. I I read a tweet this week that I think could fall right under this heading that I want us to consider. Matt Chandler said this week, it is an evil thing to be an expert in the weaknesses of your brothers and sisters. It is an evil thing to be an expert in the weaknesses of your brothers and sisters. So I want to encourage you, church, erase your complaining. Erase your complaining. I want to ask you right now, what do you have a tendency to complain about? Have you refined your complaining so that it doesn't come across as complaining, but you know it is, and God knows it is, and those who know you best know it is? I would like to ask you to just bow your head for a moment. Just bow your head. I'd like for you to go to the Lord and ask Him to give you a heart of repentance about your complaining and any disputing spirit that you have. Simply ask Him to give you a heart of repentance. Father, please stamp out complaining and disputing in our lives, in our families, in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first, erase your your complaining. Second, Embrace your calling. Embrace your calling. The calling that God has on you. He says, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want you to be pure and sincere in your character. 
so that no one can lay a legitimate accusation or blame against you. I want you to be unblemished in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation so that you will shine the beautiful light of the glory of Christ wherever you go. That's basically what he's saying. And so what, what is your calling? Like if you're taking notes right now, there are basically three aspects to your calling. What is your life calling? First, it is for you to be blameless and innocent. God is calling you, Christian, to be blameless and innocent. Blameless means to be free from accusation or blame. Whether it's an accusation or blame from God or an accusation or blame from people. Free from accusation. Job was one who was blameless. Free from accusation. Free from blame. Blameless in living your life so that people can't accuse you of living, this is a big word, a $2 word, a duplicitous life. Duplicitous. Duplicitous is that kind of life that says, you know, over here, you live this way, you speak this way, you have this kind of attitude. But then when you're over here with these people, you speak another way, you think this way, you have another attitude and another spirit. And so, honestly, the people who are over here would not recognize you when you're over here. And when you're over here, the people over here wouldn't recognize you with your attitude and your speech over here. And Paul is saying, get rid of that kind of living. Get rid of the duplicitousness. And then he says, innocent. The word means pure. It originally meant, or it was originally used for undiluted wine or unalloyed metal. That's what that word innocent originally was used in the most technical term. And so what, what the ESV translates as innocent, we could call pure. When, when Paul tells Christians to be innocent, to be pure, he's saying don't be deluded. Don't dilute your lives. We delude our lives, church, when we pursue more of the world than, than of Jesus Christ. That's how we do it. We pursue hobbies and movies and television and entertainment and politics and computer games and all of these other things more than we pursue Christ. And when we do that, all we're doing is adding bad material or bat, in the terms of undiluted wine, water to the pure wine, and we're diluting our lives, and we're making it less tasty, less salty, less, li less uh, shiny. We don't need to do that. And so, if you don't work out your salvation by being blameless and pure, then your life is a walking contradiction. I think that's what Paul is saying. He said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Remember we said last week, we're fearful that we might displease God, that we might dishonor God, that we might misrepresent God. And so Paul is saying, the way that you want misrepresent God, the way that you want grieve God, is that you don't live a duplicitous life, a contradictory life, and a, a deluded life, but rather your life will be pure, it will be blameless, it will be righteous. If you live a double life, you will push people away from Christ, not toward Him. If you live a double life, you will deny with your life what you profess with your lips. If you live a double life, you will send a message that the gospel is really not that powerful at all. And that kind of message is being sent every day by millions of professing Christians. Your calling is to be without blemish. 
your calling is to, to, to have a godly contrast to this ungodly world. Look at the second kind of part of 15. He says, without blemish. This word, this is, of course, two words in English, it described the absence of defects in sacrificial animals. That's what the, the word was used for. An absence of any defect in, a, in an animal that was going to be sacrificed for worship. In Exodus chapter 29, this is what you shall do to Aaron and his sons to hallow them for ministering to me as priest. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish. You see, only a spotless, perfect sacrifice was to be offered to the Lord. And that's the only kind of sacrifice that He would accept. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. He is calling us to live lives without blemish and without blame. Ephesians chapter 5 says that it is Christ's intention to present His church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, this, this unblemished nature of our life, this, this undefected nature of our lives, that we don't have these huge gaping holes of, of character flaws that are around us or, or malicious attitudes or bad speech or unedifying life, lifestyle. What is that to be done in the midst of? In the midst of a what? Church, look down at the text. Yes, a crooked and twisted generation. You know, I, I, I try to only ever use like Greek when I feel like it would interest you. This word crooked is where we get our word scoliosis. Scolios is what it is. Crooked and twisted generation. I mean, the, the, obviously, you know what crooked means. It's not straight. It's dishonest. It's deceptive. It's distorted. Twisted means it's perverted. It's depraved. That's the kind of world that we live in. And we were a part of that. We, we, didn't, we didn't just um, live inside of that kind of world. We were that kind of world. Church, we were crooked. We were twisted. Now God has redeemed us out of that and brought us into a better life, a holier life, a more God-honoring life. And so what he's saying is you need to live blamelessly before the world that you used to live in and that you used to yourself display. And so, Paul specifically is saying to the Philippians, he's saying, hey, you guys at Philippi, live in your twisted, perverse city in such a way that is blameless, in such a way that is without blemish, in such a way that is not duplicitous, in such a way that has integrity. Live before the people in your city with integrity and honor and righteousness. Paul would say, God has saved you to stand out in this world, not to blend in with it. To stand out from this world, not to blend in with it. All right, your third calling is at the very end of the text in verse 15. Your calling is to shine as bright lights into this dark world. Your calling is to shine as bright lights into this dark world. I'm saying embrace your calling. I'm saying just erase complaining and embrace your calling. And the, really the, the crescendo, the pinnacle of your calling is to shine brightly. 
to shine forth the truth of God, the holiness of God, the love of God to this morally corrupt and spiritually bankrupt world. Paul was big on using the terminology of light. He, he, he said to the Thessalonians, he said, you are children of light, children of the day. You're not of the night or of darkness. He told the Ephesians, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He was saying, you used to belong to them, but now you don't. You belong to God, and so shine as lights into the world. The image that he wants us to, to get is the image of walking outside and looking into the sky and seeing the stars light up the sky. And you just look at those stars and say, those are beautiful stars. The night is beautiful. You know, I have the privilege where we live to be able to see that a lot. And Heiches, I'm sure you have the same privilege. You know, often I will walk outside at 9 or 10 o'clock at night and look up into the sky, and there are just, just stars that are just illuminating the sky. And you just, you just, like I was a little kid again, just look up into the sky, and you're just amazed by the beauty of it. But sometimes... Sometimes I'll walk out and I can't see a single star in the sky. It is dark. I love that. Where, where are the stars? You know, the, the, the truth is that there are astronomical explanations for why we can't see the stars at that point. But you know, the world around us, what are they seeing? Are they seeing us light up their world with a beautiful, holy, unique, wonderfully pleasant, humble lifestyle? Or are they seeing people that look just like them and sound just like them and prioritize the same things that they prioritize that really there's nothing different about us than there is about them? And you know what? There are spiritual explanations for why that may be the case. Paul is calling us to embrace our calling to light up our world with blamelessness and integrity and righteousness and an unblemished light that people might see the beauty and glory of our holy Lord. That's our calling. That's our responsibility. That's what we need to do. Okay. Let's go to third instruction. The third instruction. Anchor your soul. Anchor your soul. He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Now church, this is what I want you to understand. The the first instruction that I gave you, which was to erase your complaining, that's the what. What? what, what? Erase your complaining. All right, the next one is, is the why. Why erase your claiming? So that you can be blameless. You can be holy. You can be without blemish. You can shine as lights into this world. That's the reasoning behind what Paul is saying. This is how you work out your salvation. You do the what. You erase your complaining. You understand the why, so that you can shine as lights into the world. Now, this right here, then, is going to be the how. 
This is how you shine as lights in the world. This is how you walk blamelessly. This is how you are without blemish in your lifestyle and in your mindset and in your attitude. By holding fast to the word of life. By entrenching your soul into the gospel. By anchoring down at the cross and saying, I'm not leaving here. I'm not going out and, and going to try to live apart from the cross. I'm not going out and going to try to live in my own wisdom and in my own fashion. I'm not going to try to go get the wisdom of the world and the priorities of the world, but I'm going to stay at the cross and I'm going to dig my heels deep there and I'm going to find my course. I'm going to find my life at the foot of the cross of Jesus. That's how you live as lights in this world and blamelessly. And that's what he's essentially saying. He says, hold fast to the word of life. Now the word of life could also be translated a little bit longer. The word that brings life, the message that creates life. The, the message of the true life that is found in Christ. Church, it's the gospel. It's the message of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Lord. That's what the word of life is. Now I will tell you that my theology as I study the scriptures is that Paul would not draw a clear distinction between the gospel and the scriptures. The gospel and the Bible. This is what I think is very important. When Paul says the word of life, and, and if you were there in front of Paul and you'd say, are you talking about the Bible, Paul? Paul would say, yeah, the Bible. Are you talking about the gospel, Paul? Yeah, the gospel. Like, the gospel is what the Bible is about. The Bible is what exposes the gospel. I mean, it, it is the word of life. All right, so when we read it, we're understanding this beautiful and glorious message that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Okay, so that's, that's what he's saying. So hold fast to the word of life. Okay, let's do one thing right here. Let's hold our place in Philippians and go to John chapter 1. I want us to make a connection, church. That entrenching ourselves in the word of life, anchoring our souls in the word of life means anchoring our souls in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's read some in John chapter 1. And y'all help me when I pause. Y'all finish, finish the, the next word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word. Was with God and the Word. Was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Can you notice that the Word is embodied in Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ shined light into a dark world and the dark world didn't even know what to do with it? Okay, He's calling us to embody the same mindset and attitude and character of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and to shine as bright lights into this world just as He did. That's our calling. That's our calling. That's how we anchor our souls. Okay, so I want to get practical right now and ask you this question. How do you anchor your soul in the gospel? How do you anchor your soul in Jesus Christ? So that no matter, no matter where your boat goes, all right, no matter where your boat goes, you have an anchor that's set in the person and work of Christ. And you may drift off, and your life may call you to go to another country. You, your life may call you to suffer. Your, your life may call you to endure persecution. Your, your life may call you to succeed. And some of you, your life may call you to have failure. But no matter where you go and what station you're in, you're always anchored in the gospel. I want to ask you this question. How do you anchor your soul in the gospel? How do you do that? I'll give you some I'll give you some ideas here. Daily personal worship. I know this doesn't sound profound, but it is utterly biblical. This is what you need to do every day. Pray to the Lord. Read the Scriptures. Meditate on what you read that you can apply it on that day. Sing. Sing to the Lord. Gospel songs. Listen to music. If you're not a big singer, listen to great gospel music. And so as you're praying, as you're reading, as you're meditating, as you're singing, as you're listening, the gospel is being formed in your mind, sinking down into your heart that you will be anchored in Christ all day long. That's what you need to do if you're going to be anchored in your soul, to the gospel. Daily relationships. Daily relationships. So you have daily personal worship. You have daily personal relationships. Have conversations with Christians that encourage the gospel. Send text messages to your gospel friends that encourage one another in the gospel. Pick up the phone and call your friends and encourage them in the gospel. Speak words of the gospel to your gospel friends to encourage and cultivate this anchored life in Christ. Weekly worship services. So you've got daily personal worship, daily personal relationships, weekly worship services. You have prayer time at 9 o'clock, service at 10 o'clock, fellowship meal at 11.45. Time after that, commit yourself to being here every week and to reflect on the gospel, to celebrate the gospel, to revel in the gospel, to sing the gospel, to listen to the gospel. Weekly discipleship. like Attend, build, and be fed the Word of God, the Word of life, as Phil teaches out of the book of Daniel, or your children get to hear from our other teachers. Small groups. 
and meet with two or three other, other individuals just to encourage one another in the faith or to read a book of Scripture or to meditate on some other Christian book. But do so in groups as you sharpen one another. And then regular evangelism. Church, you will anchor yourself in the Gospel as you speak the Gospel to people. But the less you speak the Gospel, the less anchored you'll be in the Gospel. The more you talk about the Gospel, the more you revel in the Gospel, the more you'll be anchored there. Ryan, can you, could you testify that? You've been doing about, what, a month now? Do you find yourself kind of more anchored in the Gospel? Yeah. It has a, whenever you speak the gospel and you, you speak it to people, especially to those who need it, it helps you love it more. It helps you get anchored there more, cling to it more. Okay, so daily personal worship, daily relationships, weekly worship service, weekly discipleship, regular evangelism. Don't let go of the gospel. Don't stop loving it. Don't stop giving it to yourself. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I'm not going to be able to spend much time on this, but Paul has a very personal ambition here for, for you to do this, for, um, for the Philippians to do this. He says, so that what? So that I will not have run in vain or labored in vain, but so that I can be proud when I stand before Christ. I love that. I, I love the fact that Paul knows when his life is spent, and he stands before the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings on that final day. He is going to give an account, not only of the personal life that he lived, but the ministry that he had. And the ministry that he had, is the quality of it, the nature of it, is going to be demonstrated by the quality and nature of the lives of the people that he ministered to. And so what, what Paul is saying is, he's saying, Philippians, I, I don't want to open up my hands and I don't want it to be like sand that runs through my fingers when the Lord is making me give an account of my ministry. He's saying what I would like to do is open up my hands and I would like to show Him fruit. Abundant, big, juicy fruit that you bore because you clung to the gospel of Jesus Christ your whole life. That's what I want. And I would be dishonest if I didn't tell you, church, that that's exactly the same thing that I want when I stand before the Lord in my ministry to you. I want to stand before the Lord with hands full of fruit because you have anchored your soul in the gospel and lived blamelessly. You have lived unblemishedly before the world and you have shined as lights unto a world that desperately needs Jesus. Let's look finally. Let's look finally and enjoy your course. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, the idea here is that the Philippians had believed the gospel and so they had this faith and they were experiencing suffering in Philippi People were opposed to their message and to their life, and so they were having all this hatred and hostility heaped on them. And so it's very likely that they were going to suffer to the very end for their faith. And he's saying, look, your life and your living 
is a sacrificial offering. And your death and your dying is going to be a sacrificial offering to the one whom you believed this whole time. And I know I'm in prison in Rome and I might die any time. I might get the axe at any moment. But if I do, this is what I know. Your life is like an unblemished animal that's being offered up on the altar as a sacrifice of an aroma that pleases God. And all my life is, is a drink offering. A drink offering that is being poured out on top of your sacrifice to make it an even better aroma as the Lord receives your act of worship. That's all he's saying. He's saying, if I die... I'm only adding on top of your life of worship and faith in Jesus Christ. And so, enjoy it. He says, look, I'm enjoying it. I'm going to be glad. I'm going to rejoice. Whether I live or whether I die, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I have a constant inner delight of my soul that says no matter whether I suffer or succeed, no matter whether I fail or whether I experience all kinds of hardships for the rest of my life, I'm going to rejoice and be glad because I belong to Christ and I'm going to be with Christ and I'm going to be like Christ and I can't wait for that day. So what do I not have to rejoice in right now? And he's saying, enjoy it. Enjoy whatever happens to you because Christ is yours. Enjoy your course by living for Christ. Okay, church. Let's pause for a minute or so and, and, and take our breath. If you can, um, bow your head. We'll just have a moment of meditation and prayer. I want to ask you a few questions. How can you maintain a joyful attitude in the face of, of the problems of your life? How can you maintain a joyful attitude in the face of the problems of your life? Because that's exactly what Paul is calling you to. He's saying, erase your complaining, embrace your calling, anchor your soul, enjoy your course. How can you do that in the face of your problems right now? Paul uses the image of being a sacrificial offering. What does that image teach you right now about the nature of your life and your ministry to others? And how should the day of Christ affect how you live your life today and whether or not you make disciples with it? Lord, may you give every Christian here insight and illumination in how to obey Christ's call in our life anchor our souls in Him and to shine His lights in this dark world. In Jesus' name, Amen.